Uh, you know, we're in a series um, about God's real worldview, you know, and what a worldview is, simply, we're going to talk about this over and over again over the next few weeks, or months maybe, but uh, a worldview is how you view the world, worldview, view the world, you know, it, it's what you believe uh, to be true about what you see in the world around you, and your worldview really does, um, it it's the value from which, it's the view from which you do everything. The decisions you make, um, the, the, the ideas, the thoughts, the feelings you have, it comes out of your worldview. And, and it's really important, if we're going to follow Christ, that we need to know what God's worldview is. You know, it shocked me that 8% of all Christians that were polled. Now, you know, this is just a sampling of small sampling. Well, it was just 8% really had a biblical, godly worldview. And so many times, you know, we say we're Christians, and we are. We accepted the Lord Jesus as our Savior, but, but the way we view the world is, 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 is really not based and founded in the Scripture. So what we're doing is we're slowly going through Romans, and we're going to see through the book of Romans what really is a godly biblical worldview. Well, today I wanted um, uh, someone to come up and share with you, you know, what it means to them to have a worldview, a biblical godly worldview, and how that affects their lives, right? Because a lot of us say, yeah, I have a godly worldview, but then how we live our lives, you know, they don't sync up. And I wanted to, to, to have someone... Who is, who is doing their best to try to sync up their life with their worldview. And so I want to call up Jim Miyashiro. <clears throat> Jim Miyashiro is an elder in our church, and uh, uh, he, he works downtown, and uh, that's it. All right, have okay. fun. Thanks. Thank you, Mark, for that. All right, so why don't we get started by taking a look at the screen again, and what you'll see may look familiar to you. So you may have seen this when you're in elementary school. At first glance, it appears that the two horizontal lines are different lengths. But as we know, in actuality, the two lines are the exact same size. And so this has some relevance to the issue of worldview. At first glance, it may appear that there is only the world's worldview. But in reality, there is more than meets the eye. And the real world is much different than what appears on the surface. And so we've been talking about these past couple of weeks, the issue of worldview, which is the lens through which we view everything, whether it's ourselves, others, our family, politics, even sports. From the mundane choices such as, who do I, uh, you know, how do I spend my free time, and what do I watch on TV, to the seemingly more important choices, such as how do I choose the friends that I hang out with and how do I spend my money, to the really important choices, such as how do I choose my job and how do I choose my spouse, how do I raise my child, and how will I measure success in my life. And so our worldview is the very foundation upon which we build our entire life. And the world would like us to believe that there is only one worldview. 
the world's worldview. But Jesus came and showed us a different way. The world says, do what you want. As Protagoras, the Greek philosopher, said, man is the measure of all things. What matters is feelings. Feelings is more important than reality. And each person should be able to do what he or she feels like doing. It's all relative. But God says, there is right and wrong, good and evil. God is the measure of all things. There are immutable truths. There are absolutes. Now, the world also says, we must follow what is logical and scientific. We only believe what can be proven, what is reproducible through experimentation. And as an aside, that is completely inconsistent with the world saying that it's all relative and what matters is feelings rather than scientific. But God says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and God will not fit within our scientific experimentation methodology, and he will not be contained by doing the exact same thing each time we take a certain action. And so we have a choice to make. Which worldview will we subscribe to? Now, before we delve into this topic, let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have, and we ask that you would open our eyes, ears, and hearts. Speak to each one of us your truth. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, lest you think I am exaggerating the, the differences between the two worldviews, let's take a look at what the Apostle John says in 1 John 2. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. So what is clear is that God's ways are different than the world's ways, and the world's worldview is drastically different than God's worldview. Now, years ago, as a young Christ follower, I tried to merge these two worldviews, and so I tried to have it both ways. I tried to please both God and this world. And so, for example, I do things such as trying to do well in school so that I could gain the acclaim of the people around me and also show that God was blessing me. And I would get involved in socially accepted community service projects, such as cleaning the beaches and feeding the homeless. And it seemed like I was able to get by with this for a while. But it's not long before the two worldviews diverge and we're forced to pick one. James 1, 5 through 8 warns, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So we need to make a choice as to which worldview we're going to follow. Now, bear with me, I get to make a Matrix reference. Now, just out of curiosity, how many of you are familiar with the movie The Matrix? Okay, the reason I ask is because 
Um, I jumped onto Wikipedia and found out it came out in 1999, so there may be some youngins here who are not familiar with that. And if that's the case, then kind of missing out. <laughs> so as many of you know, you can always watch it. Uh, as many of you know, um, at least the old folks like me, Morpheus, the leader of the rebellion against the Matrix, tells Neo that he has a choice. You take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. So the blue pill represents the apparent but fake world, while the red pill represents the real world. And in the same way, we have a choice to make. Will we follow the world's worldview or God's worldview? And if we choose God's worldview, then we should be forewarned that God wants all of us, not just some parts. He cares about the big things and the small things, and as I'll share a little bit later, even some seemingly random things. Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch prime minister and theologian, pointed out, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. And similarly, DC Talk, the musical group, sang that God should consume us. You consume me like a burning flame running through my veins. You consume me, moving through me. Any time, any place, you invade my space. You consume me. Wholly devoted, I immerse myself in you. Baptize me in your love, because drowning in the thought of you floods my soul. I'm taken by the things you do. God, you know it doesn't matter what I lose. I'm yours. And this is similar to how Pastor Mark spoke last year about the meaning of baptism. The Greek word baptizo means to immerse, almost like being pickled. And in the same way that we like our kimchi to be fully pickled, God is calling us to be fully immersed in him. God should permeate all of our spaces, big, small, and even random. Which brings us back to the issue of worldview. Whether we know it or not, our worldview affects everything that we do. What kind of car we drive, who we vote for, what we stream on Netflix, and who we follow on Twitter. And as a disclaimer, there is a cost to following Jesus, which means that there is a cost to having God's worldview. Jesus was very clear about this, and he spoke in the Bible many times about the cost of being a disciple. In Mark 8, 34 through 38, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. In John 15, Jesus puts it in even starker terms. If the world hates you, Keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. 
A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. So Jesus' first followers, the 12 disciples, understood the cost of following Jesus. In fact, all of them, excluding Judas and John, ultimately died for their decision to follow Jesus. And even John, the only one to die a natural death of old age, was still persecuted and even exiled to a remote island. So there is definitely a cost to following Jesus and having God's worldview. Do we think that we, as Christ's followers in the 21st century, are somehow exempt from this? We should expect to suffer and even be persecuted for being Christ's followers. In 1 Peter 4, the Apostle Peter cautions us to the cost of following Jesus. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the spirit of glory and and of God rests on you. So now going back to Matrix, one of the rebels, Cypher, gets tired of fighting against the machines and decides enough is enough. So he agrees to betray the rebels in exchange for being put back into the fake world as someone rich and famous. And as he strikes the deal over a meal, Cypher says the following, You know, I know this steak doesn't exist. I know when I put it in my mouth, the matrix is telling my brain that it is juicy and delicious. After nine years, you know what I realize? Ignorance is bliss. And a few years ago, there were many days where I simply wanted to be part of this world, and I wanted to eat the steak even if I knew it was fake. But through time and seeing God's faithfulness and provision, I have much less of those days. I have a better understanding and appreciation of the true costs and benefits of the two worldviews. Lest you think I'm taking literary liberties, let's take a look starting at John 6.60. After talking about communion, eating Jesus' flesh and drinking his blood, many disciples deserted Jesus. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not not want to leave me too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I think it is healthy to have tension 
with this world. In fact, I think this may very well indicate that we are truly following Christ. And as a Christ follower, seeing the ways of this world should make us feel uncomfortable. If not, if we are completely comfortable with with this world, this may indicate that we are actually of this world. And as a side note, I think it's pretty clear what the world says about things. Social media has done a great job of making the world's opinion quite apparent. And we may think we know what God says about things. But what does the Word of God, the Bible, really say about things? For example, sex before marriage, or marriage itself, or life in the womb. In order to find out, we need to read the Bible and see what God says. Are we conforming to this world, or are we being transformed by God and his worldview? Just as Daniel was a foreigner in Babylon, we who are Christ's followers today are foreigners as well. If a foreign ambassador came to the United States and replaced all of his native customs and cultures with American ones and pretended to be an American, we'd wonder if the ambassador was actually doing his job. And in the same way, as, a, as followers of Christ, if we start living in accordance with the ways of this world rather than with the ways of Christ, then we should wonder whether or not we truly are following Christ. Are we more focused on fitting into this world rather than being the salt and light in this world? In John 17, Jesus prayed for his disciples. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world just as I do not belong to the world. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. And this prayer applies to us as well. So I'm going to share about what God has been doing in my life as I've been slowly transitioning from the world's worldview to God's worldview. And it probably started with the music that I listened to. Some people like to listen to musical beat. Others like to listen to the lyrics. I happen to fall in the latter category, and so I listen to the words, and I listen to the message that's being conveyed. And I started to feel uncomfortable with the words that I was hearing, things that I can't repeat in my message. And the Holy Spirit started to convict me, so I had to change the radio stations that I listened to. (laughs) then the same thing happened to me with movies and TV shows and it got to a point where I had trouble watching shows I remember coming home on a Friday after a long week of work and I just wanted to be entertained so I turned on the TV and on popped The Hangover now as a disclaimer I'm not judging anyone who's watched and enjoyed this movie but Within a few seconds, there was a less than edifying comment. Um, And I laughed and I winced at the same time. Um, But I was tired and I just needed to decompress. And I just wanted to be entertained by meaningless amusement. Uh, A few seconds later, there was another less than edifying joke. And the Holy Spirit started to poke and prod at me. And I started to have an internal dialogue. Um, This is just entertainment. And I'm 
you know, mature enough to handle this. Plus, um, Max told me this was a really good movie. <laughs> I, I made that up. I made that up. It was actually Pastor Mark, but that's okay. <laughs> but when that wasn't working, and the Holy Spirit started to continue to just stab and jab at me, I tried to speak in terms that God would understand. So I said, God, don't you want me to be able to relate to other people? I mean, this could actually be a great way for me to um, you know, start sharing the gospel with them. Uh, but God was not buying it, and he ended up winning. And so out of frustration, I turned the channel, and sadly, I think I ended up watching the Hallmark Channel. But <laughs> at least I was at peace. So then God started to work on me in a different area of, of my life. And this next one, I warn you, may be odd, possibly even bizarre, um, but I will share it with you because it's true, and I think that this is how God has wired me. I also won't make any Chinese jokes, um, even though I am part Chinese, and this could help explain some things. Um, about 10 years ago, I started to focus on where my money was going. And no, not in a Dave Ramsey, make a budget, name every dollar kind of way, but in which companies I was patronizing. And I became sensitive to certain companies that were publicly taking positions that were contrary to God's word. And I felt that it was a matter of being a good steward of how I spent my money. And without naming names, I started to have a difficult time going to certain stores. In fact, there was a certain shop that I frequented about three to four times a week that I was led by God to no longer go to. And it was during this time that I really began to feel like a foreigner. God's worldview was starting to interfere with my life. It was crimping my style, like the cool kids like Neil Murakami say. <laughs> Kyle Eidemann, in his book, Not a Fan, distinguishes between mere fans and actual followers. Most of us don't mind Jesus making some minor changes in our lives, but Jesus wants to turn our lives upside down. Fans don't mind him doing a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants complete renovation. Fans think a little makeup is fine, but Jesus is thinking makeover. Fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. And I remember confiding with a mature Christian brother uh, about how I felt, and he responded that he was overjoyed that I felt this way. And I remember thinking at the time that that's an odd response, but in retrospect, I fully appreciate uh, this encouragement. Then God also began working on my view of family, and I had an idea, as some of you may have, that Susan and I would have two healthy and, of course, beautiful kids playing within our white picket fence. As some of you know, Susan and I instead had a very difficult time. <clears throat> a year into our marriage, Susan, Susan had a traumatic ectopic pregnancy. And this was followed by a number of miscarriages. Sorry. Uh, and for six years of marriage, we wondered if we would ever be able, 
be able to have a child. <clears throat> In 2010, Susan became pregnant, and after the first trimester, baby listened. I'm sorry, doctor listened to baby's heartbeat. It was strong and healthy, and so we started to announce to family and friends the good news. A couple of weeks later, we received a call from our doctor's office, and he told us that one of baby's quad screen blood test results had come back abnormal. So a few days later, we went to the to see the perinatologist who studied baby from different angles, and he asked whether uh, we wanted to know the sex of baby, and we nodded. It's a boy, he said, and then it was. Downhill from there. <clears throat> he explained that babies. He explained that baby's heart was outside of his chest, and that baby's skull was not developing. He explained that baby had an extremely <coughs> rare condition called amniotic. <coughs> amniotic band syndrome, uh, <coughs> where band-like wires are formed from the amniotic sac, and baby does not develop normally. So, due to these severe abnormalities, we were told that baby had no chance of living. And during this time, the church stepped up and supported us with prayers, encouragement, and fasting. And most importantly, God came. God came alongside us and embraced us. With what can only be described as a supernatural sense of peace, we named our baby Peter, and he reminded us of Jesus, because in the same way, thank you, Max. Excuse me. So we named our baby Peter, and he reminded us of Jesus, because in the same way that God sent His Son to die for us, God used Peter's life to truly show His unconditional love for us. And through this, Susan and I came to a point where we were perfectly happy if we never had a child on this side of heaven. Seven years into our marriage, and with me closing in on the ripe age of forty, while many of my peers had two or three kids in middle school, we were at peace. Two years later, on December 25, 2011, God blessed us with, our, with a Christmas gift of our daughter Lydia. Our worldview has also been the pivotal factor in our decision as to where to send Lydia for kindergarten this fall. As background info, I graduated from Iolani 
and attended that school since kindergarten. My father is a proud Iolani alum, and my younger sister also is an alum. My older, I'm sorry, my younger sister is an alum. My older sister sadly went to Punahou, but <laughs> that was only because Iolani didn't accept girls in kindergarten back then. And for many of my friends and coworkers, it's almost a foregone conclusion that you send your daughter, I mean, you send your child to Iolani or Punahou if they don't get into Iolani. <laughs> Susan and I spent many hours talking about this and praying about this, and in the end. We decided that what was most important was that Lydia would develop a personal and intimate relationship with Jesus, and from this, that she would grow in character and reflect the fruit of the Spirit in her, in her interactions with others. Sure, we want Lydia to have a stellar academic experience with world-class facilities, but it is secondary to our primary goal. So we are not applying Lydia to Iolani or Punahou. In fact, we are only applying her to one school, a school that focuses on equipping students spiritually, intellectually, physically, socially, and emotionally, so that they bring honor to God. And it's not—it's not Castle. Although Castle was close. <laughs> a few weeks ago, I was chatting with a coworker who is an Iolani alum. And he asked me where I was applying Lydia to school, so I told him, and he looked at me in a quizzical way, and he said, yeah, "Given that you went to Iolani, and then Stanford for undergrad and Yale for law school, why aren't you sending your daughter to Iolani or Punahou?" And I was able to share the importance of my Christian faith with him. My hope and dream for my daughter. Is drastically different than what I had in mind 10 years ago before I had a child. Before, my goal would have been to get my child into Iolani, to prepare her to attend an Ivy League school, which would set her up for a high-paying job, so that she could live the American dream, and support her parents. <laughs> nothing, nothing necessarily wrong with that, especially obviously the supporting of the parents part. Indeed, that dream is definitely consistent with the world's view. Of success, but God has a different goal in mind, a much better goal that has eternal consequences. And through the years, my mindset has looked less like the world's and more like God's. And God has also been working on my perspective of my career. A couple of years ago, I was contacted about a possible job at a different company. It would be for a higher position that would pay well and allow me to supervise other attorneys, and I was extremely excited. And I prayed during that time that God would open and close doors. Of course, what I meant was that He would open the door at this new company and close the door on my existing company. And during that time, I started to develop a, a very negative attitude toward my job and my existing company. I just couldn't wait to move over. And the new job seemed to be very promising. I met with senior management, and things seemed to be progressing well. All I needed was for the formal offer to be made, and I kept praying that God would open and close doors. A few months passed, and nothing happened, and I continued to get assurances that a formal offer would be forthcoming shortly. Another month passed, 
and still no offer. And by that time, I realized that God had closed the door on this new job and kept the door open on my, new, on my, on my existing job. And I was deeply disappointed. But God began to show me that this new job was not where he wanted me to be. Sure, there would have been an increase in compensation, prestige, and responsibility. But the new job would have been much more stressful and would have taken time away from my family and other activities. I also think that this new job would have given me uh, a false and unhealthy sense of pride. In fact, I quickly began to realize that my current job was much better than this potential new job. So much so that I actually now love my job. And nothing had really changed from when I hated my job to when I loved it. By no means is my job perfect, but I definitely do appreciate it. And I, I've told Susan this so many times that now, whenever I happen to say, hey, you know what? She'll immediately respond, yes, I know, you love your job. <laughs> so by the world's standards, if, if I had moved to this new job, I would have been climbing the proverbial corporate ladder and achieving success. But I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God's closing the door on this new job was truly a blessing from above. Now, I understand that having God's worldview may seem difficult, but on the other side is something quite amazing. Going back to the quote from Kyle Eidemann about how fans only want a little touch-up work, but Jesus wants a complete renovation. I can relate to this because Susan and I are currently in the middle of a renovation, and it definitely is inconvenient. Not having a kitchen is no fun. Eating microwavable meals in your bedroom gets tiring after the third week. And being stuck at home all weekend to watch the contractors as they hammer and saw is a drag. But as we get closer to the end, I can see that it's worth it. Enjoying a brand new kitchen will make me soon forget about all the inconvenience that I'm going through. And in the same way, if we allow God to renovate our lives by following his worldview. There will be temporary inconveniences, but they will definitely be worth it. God also showed me another analogy recently. A couple of weeks ago, I had my wedding band resized, and when I got it back, I immediately thought it was way too tight, and I, th I thought the jeweler had made a mistake. Um, all I could focus on was how tight it felt and how it was cutting off my blood circulation, and when I went back to the office, I had to actually take it off just so I could get some work done. Um, however, as I began to wear it more and more, it began to feel much more comfortable to the point where now I, I don't even think about it. And similarly, when I first began to truly follow God's worldview, it felt very uncomfortable. I kept seeing the tension and the conflict between what the world was saying and what God was saying. However, in the last year or so, I've begun to feel much more comfortable, almost to the point that I actually expect this tension and am not surprised by it. In fact, if I don't feel different, then I wonder if I'm not doing something right. 
It's almost as though if we are doing this correctly, then we should feel the tension with the world's worldview. So what are the benefits to having God's worldview? A joy and a peace that cannot be shattered by changing circumstances? True freedom, not as the world promises but can't deliver, but only as God can provide. A confident hope that the best is yet to come. And I've started to experience this in my career and in my family. I remember talking to a friend who is not a Christ follower, and he was stressing out about trying to get his preschool son into the perfect school. And knowing how I'm wired, if I were following the world's way, I know that I would be stressing out as well about trying to give Lydia every single possible advantage to get into Iolani or Punahou. Instead, I have complete peace about Lydia and her schooling. David Platt, in his book, Follow Me, says, Yes, there is a cost that accompanies stepping out of casual, comfortable, cultural Christianity, but it is worth it. More aptly put, he is worth it. Jesus is worthy of far more than intellectual belief, and there is so much more to following him than monotonous spirituality. There is indescribable joy to be found, deep satisfaction to be felt, and an eternal purpose to be fulfilled in dying to ourselves and living for him. Dr. Larry Crabb, in his book Shattered Dreams, contrasts lower dreams with the highest dream. We dream lower dreams and think there are none higher. We dream of good marriages, talented kids, health and money to enjoy life, rewarding work, and for some reason we think they are the best things. This is what God means when he calls us foolish. The greatest blessing is not the blessing of a good life. It is the blessing of an encounter with God. We don't see things that way. We almost always mistake lesser pleasures for this greater pleasure and live our lives chasing after them. So God goes to work to help us see more clearly. One way he works is to allow our lower dreams to shatter. He lets us hurt and does not make it better. The Holy Spirit uses the pain of shattered dreams to help us discover our desire for God. He leads us into the depths of our being, into the center of our soul where we feel our strongest passions. It is there that we discover our desire for God. Shattered dreams are not accidents of fate. They are ordained opportunities for the Spirit to awaken us to our highest dream, an encounter with God. Through the pain of shattered lower dreams, we wake up to the realization that we want an encounter with God more than we want the blessings of life. Our shattered dreams, suffering, are an opportunity to be embraced, a chance to discover our desire for the highest, for the highest blessing God wants to give us, an encounter with himself. And of course, the greatest benefit of having God's worldview is that we have the ultimate retirement plan in place. God's got eternity taken care of for us. Now, as an attorney, I do need to give you a few disclaimers. First, I'm not saying that the way that God worked in my life is going to be the same as how he works in your life. Again, God cannot be constrained by a scientific experiment where he does the same thing every time. But the fruits will be the same. 
the joy, peace, and freedom will be the same. The second disclaimer is that I don't intend to convey that I've got everything figured out in my life. It's far from it. I have much more that God is still working out in me. And a few weeks ago, I was chatting with Mike Sasaki, and I had joked to him that God had worked out some big things in my life, my career, and in my family, but how I was still struggling with some small and, frankly, meaningless things, like my unhealthy obsession with Stanford football. And we don't have time to delve into this or psychoanalyze this, but suffice it to say that God loves us so much that he, he is a jealous God, and he is in the process of breaking idols in my life. And I know that it's not a, a fun process, but I do know that it is a worthwhile one. This is about the journey. It's not about arriving at a destination. The person I was five or ten years ago would have a hard time recognizing or understanding who I am today. And that, to me, demonstrates that I am moving forward in this journey. As Joyce Meyer likes to say, I may not be where I want to be, but thank God I'm not where I used to be. This is a good way to assess your own development. Think about who you were five or ten years ago. How similar or dissimilar are you? Are you closer to God? Do you value different things? Also, do our lives look any different from non-believers? After all, if we truly have a different worldview, then our lives should look drastically different from the way that the rest of the world is living theirs. Returning to Kyle Eidelman in his book, Not a Fan, he distinguishes between fans and followers of Jesus. Fans are happy to follow Jesus as long as that doesn't require any significant change or have negative implications. There is no way to follow Jesus without him interfering with your life. Following Jesus will cost you something. Following Jesus always costs something. And he then concludes by asking this question, has following Jesus cost you anything? Following Jesus is a journey. And let's briefly go over three steps that we can take as we move forward in this worthwhile journey. First, realize that you have a choice to make. And if you don't make a choice or you delay in making a choice, then the default is the world's worldview. Stephen Covey commented that times have changed dramatically. And note that what I'm going to read was actually written in 1997, 20 years ago. In the past, it was easier to successfully raise a family outside in because society was an ally, a resource. People were surrounded by role models, examples, media reinforcement, and family-friendly laws and support systems that sustained marriage and helped create strong families. Even when there were problems within the family, there was still this powerful reinforcement of the whole idea of successful marriage and family life. Because of this, you could essentially raise your family outside in. Success was much more a matter of going with the flow, but the jet stream has changed dramatically, and to go with the flow today is family fatal. Even though we can be encouraged by efforts to return to family values, the reality is that trends in the wide society over the last 30 to 50 years have basically shifted from pro-family to anti-family. We're trying to navigate through what has become a turbulent, family-unfriendly environment, and there are powerful headwinds that easily throw many families off track. Covey was talking about this in the context of families, but the same thing applies to us individually. 
And going back to the matrix, this choice is not a one and done. We make the decision as to which pill we're going to take each and every day. Once you realize the choice, you have a decision to make. Second, be careful as to what you take in. As the saying goes, garbage in, garbage out. This is the law of the harvest. You reap what you sow. So we should be careful as to what we take in. For example, what we view, whether movies, TV shows, YouTube videos. Which brings me to social media. And I admit I'm probably in the minority, and I'm sure that the millennials will think that I'm a narrow-minded Luddite. But I'm wary of social media because it's so easy to get caught up, even subconsciously, in how many likes, followers, and retweets you have. The more people that like your photo or post, the better you feel about yourself. But if no one likes your photo or comments on your post, then you start to wonder if there's something wrong with you. Which brings me to an important question. Am I trying to please God or this world? Indeed, last week I had some downtime of a few minutes before heading out to work, and I instinctively reached for the TV remote. I was planning to watch uh, some news to get caught up on what was going on in the world. And I felt God nudging at me. Why don't you spend some time with me? I can show you what's really going on. And I thought, hmm, yeah, that's a pretty good point. If we limit our time with God to just a few minutes of cursory Bible reading and prayer, but spend the rest of our waking hours away from God, is it any surprise that we get swayed away from God's worldview and sucked into the world's worldview? If we don't spend time with God in prayer, studying his word, worshiping him, it should not be a surprise that we don't have a good sense as to what God's worldview is. We may think that we have God's worldview, but we may actually have the world's worldview simply masquerading in a religious costume. My challenge to you is to do a world's worldview cleanse. Consider fasting from movies, TV shows, and social media for a day or longer if you're ambitious. And just as we watch what we eat if we're trying to lose weight, we need to watch what we take in if we're trying to follow God's worldview. Third and finally, we need to allow God room to move in your life. The world's worldview is that if you want something, you need to go out there and make it happen. Carpe diem. Lean in. But in actuality, we need to learn how to hold things lightly. As the saying goes, we need to let go and let God. And I've seen how this works, especially in my career, as I shared earlier. By praying that God will open and close doors, we are entrusting God with our situation and allowing the Holy Spirit to move. So in the upcoming week, what is an area that we can purposefully submit to God and allow Him the room to move? In closing, God is calling us to much greater things than this world can ever offer. But to attain this, we need to replace the world's worldview with God's worldview. The way that our eyes are created, we can only focus on one thing at a time. Like a camera, if we focus on something near, then things afar become blurry. And in the same way with our worldview, we get to choose what we are going to focus on, the things of this transitory world or the things of eternity. And this reminds me of the hymn, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, 
look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Today, may we take concrete steps along this journey to being able to see our life the way that God sees it. Let us pray. Dear God, you know where each one of us is at, and you are meeting us exactly where we are. We acknowledge that your ways truly are higher than our ways. We ask that you would help us to see the world and our life as, as they really are. Help us to see with your eyes and help us to embrace your worldview. May we encourage others, whether our spouse, child, or friend, to follow your worldview. And may we take tangible steps today and in the upcoming week to follow you more nearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jimmy. Um, that, was, that was awesome. That was really, really good. So thank you. Um, if you would like prayer, just come up. We would love to pray with you. If you're hungry, there's food in the back. And uh, have a great week focusing your eyes. God bless.